Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Unruffled ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's nothing like being totally engrossed in a good mystery or thriller. Audible has thousands of immersive audiobook titles to spark your imagination and get your heart thumping. Since it's summer, you might want to check out The Vacation Rental. Very well told and very unsettling. You won't want to turn it off. And since this is a parenting podcast, I should also mention that audiobooks are a wonderfully enriching experience for children because they aren't passive entertainment like other kids' media. They engage your child's imagination and can nurture both listening and language skills. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible for free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. That's audible.com slash unruffled or text unruffled to 500-500 today. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected. After investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or tmobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today, I'm pleased to host Dr. William Stickrude. He has a wealth of experience and wisdom to share from his decades of working with families as a therapist for children with learning and mental health challenges. He often sees the same client from childhood through adolescence and adulthood, so he's able to see the results of his practice. He's the co-author with his associate Ned Johnson of two popular books, The Self-Driven Child, which to me feels in many ways like the perfect counterpart to the ideas I share for caring for kids in early childhood and how they might translate to understanding our role as parents with grade school, middle and high school age children. I love this book and I'm looking forward to reading their recently published follow-up offering, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. I'm hoping Bill will share his secrets for encouraging our children's healthy motivation and their and our sense of control, which as he believes is the key to mental health. I'm excited. Hi, Bill. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Janet. Well, I just adored your book. It's so compatible with the kinds of messages that I try to give to parents as well. So it was wonderful to experience how this looks and feels in your work with children who are mostly grade school and older, right? I would say that, yeah, I test kids. I'm a, I'm a neuropsychologist and I test kids for a living. And I test kids from from four to about 40 or so, but um, mainly I see school age, middle school and high school kids, yeah. And you work with them and their parents as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do evaluations, and then I, I, I tell parents what I learn, I tell kids what I learn, and probably most of the kids I follow over time. So I'm, I'm just I'm seeing a lot of kids now that I tested initially 20 years ago. And do they come to you because they have 
issues or concerns? Yeah, yeah I, I see kids primarily because they're having learning problems or attention problems or emotional problems or social problems. But I try to figure out you know, what they're good at, what's going right, and what's going wrong and how to help them. And you've written this book, The Self-Driven Child, uh, a bestseller with Ned Johnson, who is, how, what is your connection with him? Well, we, we became friends probably 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Uh, somebody introduced us and said, you guys think so much alike. And we're very different. I mean, I'm 20 years older. I'm a neuropsychologist. Ned is the Washington, D.C. area's uh, test prep guru. He, he's, he's, he has a big uh, business helping kids do better on standardized tests. And he realized that, that the way he does it is very similar to the kind of things that I, I, I've been lecturing about for many, many years. And we started lecturing together about motivation and about how too much stress affects kids' brain and their development. And we realized as, as we worked together that we saw we had two major concerns. And one was this, what people are calling an epidemic of mental health problems in adolescents and young adults, but also in the last several years in kids from five to 11. And then also, so many of the kids we see have what we consider to be unhealthy motivation in the sense that they're either, they're obsessively driven, you know, they'll sacrifice anything to get into the most elite college, they sacrifice their health, their friends and their family. And other kids who do as little as possible don't seem to have any kind of internal drive. And we realized that there's something that connects these two things that points to a cause and a solution. And what we concluded was that what connects these two things is a low sense of control. Because a low sense of control is is at the root of all the mental health problems. I mean, think about if you're anxious, your thinking's out of control. If, If you feel depressed, you got no sense of control. If you have substance use problems, your life is chaotic. So we realized that that's the key to mental health. And also, every place we looked, Janet, to try to understand how do kids, little kids, grow up to be self-motivated? All the arrows point in the direction of autonomy. They have to sense that this is their life, and we are they are continually being forced to do things. And they don't have these areas that are free and clear for them to be autonomous. Right. That downtime and self-directed play it's everything, right? It's ther- it's therapy for them. It's how they learn. It's how they practice taking on different roles. It's so interesting. Two of my granddaughters, their mother was very strict about very limited technology, virtually none for the first few years. And all they did when they were five years old is, is play. They're 10 and seven now. And whenever they have a minute, they play, they make up games, they go to the dentist, they come home, they play dentist. That's the way that mammals have always learned to be adults. That's the way, they, as you said, they, that's the way that they manage their feelings. That's the way they, they try things out. That's the way they learn how what they do affects other people. And I think on the parents' end, it can be hard. I mean, there's all this peer pressure to have your children in classes from the time they're infants and have these schedules during the week where you're, you know, have these scheduled events. And you can't really have that kind of play that you're talking about and that I promote also, which is about good periods of time each day where there's really nothing that children have to do. And I think if children aren't used to that, then it can be tough for them to kind of wind down into that space. So that can be tough for parents sometimes, but it's really everything. It's huge. I agree. It's interesting what you said before, how you saw the two different ways that this manifested, this feeling of lack of control that it manifested in obsessively wanting to try to keep control 
in terms of I got to keep achieving, I've got to keep doing, I've, I've got to keep holding this all together and keep on this track or I can't handle what happens if I feel like it's falling apart. And then the other end of it where they kind of give up and say, what's the point? I can't control anything. And so I don't want to do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The more I've been thinking about and, and lecturing about and writing about this, this sense of control for, I guess, about six or seven years now, it's a really, really powerful construct. The research on, on anxiety problems, it looks like they're all rooted in low sense of control. Same thing with depression. And, and, and the research is looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the most, most effective approach for treating, treating children's anxiety and, and, and mood problems. The reason it works is it increases their sense of control. And again, every place that we looked at, try to understand how, how do kids become, develop that healthy self-motivation, that drive to develop themselves. And as they get older, to realize, I need to develop myself to provide useful service to this world. That's the kind of way that I think about developing kids' motivation, is that healthy self-drive to develop themselves to have something useful to offer this world. And that starts with them getting a chance to connect with themselves and see who they are, which goes back to the play thing. You know, from the time that they're babies, they can feel a sense of agency about, you know, do I want to reach for this ball or do I want to suck my fingers or do I want to look over here at this corner of the room where I see a shadow that's interesting? Allowing them to have those kinds of options gives them this sense of this is what I like to do. This is um, yes, yes. You know, it's so interesting that that some years ago I, I was reading the work of this guy named Reed Larson who studies adolescent development, and at one point in his career he was looking at you know how do how do young children turn into self motivated adolescents and adults, and, and he said it's not through dutifully doing their homework every night, it's through what he called the passionate pursuit of pastimes. He described that flow experience, the, the experience of flow where you're you're actively engaged in something you're interested in or that's fun for you or trying to solve a hard problem where it's not so easy to be boring and it's not so hard that it's wildly stressful, but it's kind of in your sweet spot and, and, and you're working hard to, to figure it out, to, to solve something or to, to beat somebody for competing. And, and so the idea is if a three-year-old is building a, a, a little fort of, of Lincoln logs or, or playing with Legos and building something. They're really concentrating on it. They're really focused on trying to make it right. That experience shapes the brain in a way that develops that intrinsic motivation, that self-drive. And so it, it wasn't through somehow doing what, what's expected of me, what other people are telling me to do. It was through that passionate pursuit of pastimes. And we can start, as you said, by respecting that they, they may have different tastes and they, they may like some things and they may think about, see something differently than I do. And, and re respecting that individuality, I think, is really healthy at the same time that we're helping them be part of a family and part of a community. You made a really good point in your book, and it's a question that I'm asked often about, well, if you're allowing children to play as they wish and you're not trying to engage them in focusing on certain kinds of learning that you think they should be working on, you know, in the early years, especially, then what happens when they get to school and they can't focus? And, and you made this great point that my mentor, Magda Gerber, used to also make. You say the best way to motivate him for the things you think he should focus on is to let him spend time on the things he wants to focus on. Right, right. And for Ned and me, my co-author and I, co-author and me, our North Star in thinking about motivation is self-determination theory. 
which is, is one of the best uh, supported theories in, in psychology developed about 30 years ago. And the main idea is that to develop that intrinsic motivation, the drive is coming from you. You have to have three needs met. One's for a sense of, of confidence, and one's for a sense of relatedness, and a sense of autonomy. And I think that when we respect autonomy, that kids feel they feel respected, and it really helps our relationship with them. And, and those two things, and as we foster competence, and we we point out, gosh, look what you just did six months ago or th- three months ago, you couldn't do this. We foster that sense of competence, and they, they can develop skill. These are the most important ways that I know of for us to build that kind of healthy self motivation in kids. Well, that reminds me of another quote that I wrote down from your book. You talked about competence. It's an internal rather than external barometer of accomplishment. Growth mindset, you're getting better. Remember that you can't develop confidence for them, and any attempt to do so will just undermine their own motivation. Makes sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, but I mean, it's very powerful, actually, because I think that a lot of times as parents, we've put that on our job description, that we've got to help them achieve this and help them achieve that. And it, it really can create a lot more anxiety in us and isn't helping. Right. So it's so interesting because anytime a kid tries to do something, whether they're two years old to try to do something or they're three or four, and they can't do it, and they try again and they figure it out, it changes the brain. It develops the circuits in their brain to when something hard happens to cope and to feel confident they can cope. Because when you're dealing with something hard, even something that's stressful, what happens, unless you're just overwhelmed, what happens initially is that your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that that can think logically and put things in perspective and calm yourself down when you're stressed, your prefrontal cortex activates and leaps into action. And when the prefrontal cortex activates, it dampens down the stress response. So we, we, we want kids, ideally, even when they're little, as much as possible, with our support, to solve their own problems, to deal with the stressful things that they, 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 they handle. But also, just when they're playing, the, the kids, kids trying, to, trying to get a Lego construction together, and it's, it's frustrating for them, and he eventually figures it out. That's what builds competence. And if we point it out to him, man, you just, God, you stuck with that incredibly. A lot of kids would have given up. You make those kind of, just kind of offhand comments. In my experience, those are the things that really structure in a kid's brain. I'm a competent person. I can learn. I can get better. And when they do need help doing the smallest thing, if they say, I can't do this, I can't do this. Hmm, well, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to put that one? You know, asking questions, but keep bouncing the ball back to them. Just being an emotionally supportive person. And it's, you know, it's hard to do. It's kind of like an art to be able to give that minimal intervention. It's true. One of the things I used to do, Jen, when, when my kids were little, if they get they get frustrated, Daddy, help me with this. I'd say, well, I'm going to look at my watch here. And if you try for a minute and a half to figure out on your own, and you still can't do it, then, then I'm going to help you. But I want to give you a chance to, to figure it out. Oh, that's a good um, idea. Yeah. And, and then they still couldn't get it. I'd say, well, I wonder what would happen if you tried this way. And uh, the, the kind of suggested way as opposed to telling what to do. Yeah, you can always break something down into steps and just give them the first step. I remember my son had to draw a picture for his, it was like a book report, and he had to draw a picture of this wolf. And he said, I can't possibly draw this picture. I think he was maybe in third grade. And I said, yeah, I mean, it is hard to draw pictures. 
what do you want to draw first? Which part of it do you want to draw first? And he said, the nose. And I said, okay, what shape would the nose be? How would you like to draw that? And it was amazing. Like he made this pretty cool picture. I was so uh, proud of myself because it was an experiment on my end. But to, to see how that worked with an older child, I'm used to doing it. I work a lot with, you know, the younger children. I'm used to yeah, yeah. doing it with them. And it's amazing. And they don't, they don't naturally have this feeling like being stuck is a bad thing. That's something that we can unfortunately influence them to feel more when, when we're worried they're not going to finish it or get it or that we're starting to feel for them. Oh, gosh, maybe they can't do it. And I've got to help. I've got to rescue. And then they start to pick up from us that anxiousness and receive that same sense of urgency from us and see that, oh, gosh, this isn't a safe place to be just in the middle where I'm not getting it. Right. And, and as you said, it's hard because we're mammals. We, we evolved to, to soothe and protect our young. And in our second book, we talk about this research of some a person by the name of Jesse Borelli. She studies what she calls parental over-control. And she has a study where these kids are in a room uh, with, with some kind of computer computerized puzzle. And they're trying to put it together. And the moms are in the room. And the moms are only given one instruction, don't help. <laughs> and what happens invariably, and, and they're measuring the kid's heart rate and the mother's heart rate. And so the kid starts to solve this puzzle, and it looks easy, but it's much harder than, than it really is. It's, as he starts to get frustrated, the kid's, kid's heart rate goes up. Mother intervenes and says, honey, try it this way or this way. Mother's heart rate goes down when, she's, when she is doing something that, that gives her a sense of control, but the kid gets more stressed as, as a mom gets involved. Wow. I, so, yeah. So I, I think it's not that we don't want to be supportive. It's not that we don't want to help our kids. It's just that we don't want to jump in. You know, I, I did this exercise. Um, I did it with a parent educator some years ago where we thought about, well, let's say your, your second grade girl comes home and, um, and she's crying because everybody in her friend group got invited to a birthday party and she didn't invite it. And what we asked the parents to do was to ask themselves, whose problem is it? Because it, the way we're wired, it's so hard to do that. It's not subject to start soothing them. Uh, well, that's okay. I'll call the mom. You know, and right. just and just and just remind them that, that that we can listen, we can try to understand. But if we jump in and solve it for them, we deprive them of that opportunity to solve it themselves and to shape that brain, this experience, and in going into coping mode. And it makes it harder for them the next time because they feel dependent on. That's us exactly right. Making them feel better. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You talk also in your book about the concept of the non-anxious presence. So 
What are some of the keys to being able to, to be that for our children? Well, can I just mention how I got to this, this idea? Please. When my daughter was just turning two, her language was coming along really well, but she stuttered. And she started to stutter really badly. And she went for a couple of days where she didn't talk. And I've never been more panicked in my life, Janet. I'm thinking, oh, God, she, if she doesn't talk, she'll never get better. She'll be teased the rest of her life. you know. And, and a couple of days later, basically her, her mouth caught up with her brain and she just stopped stuttering. And I realized that all of our fear as parents, it, it's about the future. It's about they're going to get stuck in some ways and never get better. So th that was a really formative thing for me, was realizing that all our worry, all our fear, it's about the future. The kids are, the kids are going to get stuck. And my experience is if we as parents don't get highly anxious and, and, and too involved, kids, they go through stuff and they grow out of it. And the other thing was when I used to do therapy, I'd sit with parents and um, one of the parents would start to cry and they'd say, I just wanted to feel good about himself. And, I, and it struck me many years ago, I said, well, I, th I think it would be easier for us to help him feel good about himself if we weren't worried sick. And then somebody introduced me some years ago to this idea of a non-anxious presence. I, I, I love the idea. I love the term. And I didn't make it up, unfortunately, but, but um, I, I was introduced to it. And somebody at an independent school in, in Washington, D.C. asked me to do a program with parents on how to become a non-anxious present. And I never quite thought about it in terms of parenting that, that exact way. But I realized if you've got an infant who's crying and wailing, it's a lot easier to soothe them if you stay calm. If you've got a two-year-old who's, who's having a tantrum in a store, it's a lot easier to handle if you stay calm. If you've got a 16-year-old who's coming home and his girlfriend just dumped him, if you can stay calm, you can be much more helpful. And we know that kids are, I mean, kids are more stressed than they certainly much more stressed now, much more fearful. I mean, it's like the message that young kids get is, is be very afraid. As they get older, it seems to be be very afraid given how many kids are so anxious and fearful. And you've really seen that rise? In, well, in I... Oh, yeah, I, I see in my own practice, but the statistics on it are just they're mind-boggling. The Sur Surgeon General now calls the status of mental health in adolescents the defining public health crisis of our lifetime. And I think for, for, for parents of young children, there's so much we can do to strengthen them. Um, and I think in part by if we move in the direction of being a non-anxious presence, we help kids in just dozens of ways. And for example... If a little kid falls in the playground and our, we go, ah, are you okay? The kids learn to react to things that happen to them in part by watching how their parents react. And so, so many kids, if they, they fall in the playground and they look to say, should I cry? You know, am I okay? And if we stay calm, it's different than if we, oh, honey, are you okay? And I'm not saying if, you know, something really bad, we, we shouldn't be nurturing. We want to be nurturing to our kids. I think we, in our first book, we quote this um, book. It's a kind of a magical character. And, and he says to these group of kids that, I'm sorry I couldn't keep you safe. And the kids say, you did something much more important. You helped us feel brave. And part of the way I think about this non-anxious presence is not being overly emotionally reactive and not being burdened by excessive anxiety or worry and being able to communicate that courageous attitude as opposed to a fearful one. Because there's a lot of things that you could worry about in this world. And I'm not saying we should never worry. Worry helps us stay safe in many ways. 
But yes. ideally, if what we communicate is, yeah, I, that makes me anxious too, but I know I can handle it. And you can too. It's a very powerful way to, to help kids develop confidence that they can handle stuff and also to communicate that courage. Um, I'd, I'd love any thoughts about what I just said, and then I'll, I'll tell you some of the ways that we think about encouraging parents to move in that direction of being a non-anxious presence. For me, when you said courageous, you know, that really hits home for me because I started to imagine, and this was when I had to, you know, take my upset first toddler out of a grocery store or someplace, or when I had to uh, do anything, I would just, I would see myself, and I've talked about this, the parents that listen here probably have heard me say it, but I would put on a superhero suit, like in my mind, to be confident for you, you know, because I'm very sensitive. I tend to take on everybody else's mood. So if my child's afraid, that affects me too. And then I'm sure I affect them back. And I would imagine, you know, if you were a fire person coming in here to help somebody that had to jump out of a building, you know, you would be very confident for them. You would know that this is the most important thing, that you you weren't panicking and that you weren't afraid and that you believed that they could fall into that net and they'd be okay. So I take it to that level. I really needed a lot of work. And what I found is it's easier for me to be courageous for my child than for myself. Yeah. And my, my co-author um, in our second book, he his twin brother is an EMT. And um, what he does, he goes, he goes into situations, an emergency situation in a family. And he says, I think we're under control here. You don't have to panic. Should I let you know if, if it's time to worry? <laughs> you know, it's just, just modeling. Because when, when we wrote our first book, The Self-Driven Child, one of the things we emphasize is the research on what's called stress stress contagion. The idea of stress is contagious. I mean, if you're around a really stressful person, your brain picks that up and, and, and it increases your stress level. As we were researching our second book, I learned that one of the mantras of the Navy SEALs is calm is contagious. And it's contagious because all emotions are contagious. And that's part of the reason why I, I, I encourage parents to move in that direction of being a non-anxious presence in your family. Because then what you do is you communicate, you infuse calmness in, in your family and your kids feel it. Yeah. And so how else can parents do that when there are so many concerns, especially as parents? You know, there's a lot of concerns in the world. And then there's concerns as parents, which magnify everything. You know, one of the things we talk about, I think, in the introduction to Self-Driven Child is that um, most human beings are living the safest time, the safest place in human history. And many of our fears as parents are related to this 24-7 news cycle and the fear that the parents have of young children like being abducted. It's all based on that we get these alerts and, and, and it turns out that the rates of child abduction are extremely low, except for if parents are divorced, one, one parent will take a kid without the other parent knowing it. But the perception of danger is much greater than it really is. So that's one thing. What I ask parents to do is to take a long view in the sense that most kids turn out fine. And because I test kids who are having problems, and I've followed kids for 40 years, I know the vast majority of kids, even the ones I see are having problems, they, they turn out fine. In fact, I got a Christmas card two years ago, Janet, and the outside, well, it said, you were right. And I opened it up, and it's a picture of the, these three young adults with their spouses. And, and, and their parents had written, they all turned out great. Oh, 
Yeah, these are these are kids who I, I evaluated at very points, starting in the, probably the mid nineteen nineties through the early two thousands, and I hadn't seen any of them in ten years. And I just just got an email from a mom who I saw kid I thought she was who was eight, who's now like thirty eight, and um, she had autism. And she, the mom's just saying she's she's just so great, you know, and doing so great. So just take take a long view and remember that all our worry about our kids. It's about something's happening now. Oh my God, this is not going to get better. And it's because the low sense of control is the most stressful thing you can experience in the whole world. That if we don't know a kid has a problem and we don't know how to solve it, it's very stressful. So we kind of work on ourselves, as you did, Janet, to experience more of that kind of inner calm so that we can radiate that calm to our family. We train ourselves to remember that if I don't get stuck, my kid's not going to get stuck. And we can take steps to solve these problems. And that that usually they turn out really good. So if our children aren't going to feel that sense of control, unless we feel that sense of control, we can maybe derive our sense of control from that visualization or belief, that trust that my child probably will be just fine. Right. And get through these things. And you know what? Our job as parents is not as complicated as I think we can make it. Just like with the news cycles, there's so much parenting advice out for people now. And it's overwhelming. And it can sound like this is such an intricate thing. You know, it's something that we're putting out there to try to help the various parenting advisors and me. It can make it appear as if, oh, there's so many details we have to get right. And really, those are just supposed to help you if you're stuck, maybe. But it's not that complicated. It's really not. And you and I that have adult children can acknowledge that. I have yeah. three adult children also. I remember my my um, my son had tics and learning disabilities, and, and I worried about the, particularly about the tics and people about being teased and that. And I, just, I realized that the most important thing I can do to help myself is to, is to, to work on my own fear, my own anxiety, and, and realizing that, that my fear was all about, as he got older, if his texts were terrible, that, that that might affect him negatively somehow. And he's a PhD psychologist. He's a very successful, wonderful human being, beautiful wife, beautiful children. And that yeah, I had a lot of worry. But, but I, I realized that I was more upset than he was. And I, I, so, and I, I just worked at it. What, what I realized is that um, if I see kids are going through a hard patch, then I, if I see it, this is part of their path. And I'm going to help them through it, as opposed to thinking this is a disaster. That perspective of accepting where kids are. If we think about the idea of unconditional love and unconditional acceptance, arguably the most important thing we can do for our kids is let them them know we love them immeasurably, no matter what they do or how hard they try or how they behave. This is one of the ways that we do it. And, you know, if we look back at our own lives, how many rough spots have we all had? I mean, and how positive were those for us? Right. Before we we started uh, recording this, you know, you, you mentioned this uh, experience I talk about in the subject of a child, where when I was in first grade, I, I cried the whole first week. I'd never been in a situation where I didn't know anybody. Um, none, none of my, my friends from kindergarten were in my first grade class. And I, I, was, I was kind of a, a little bit on the anxious side anyway. And w- one day, the girl sitting next to me said, Ms. Ward, uh, Billy's crying. And she said, he's going to be fine. And I realized she's just modeling this non-anxious presence and communicating confidence that I could be, I, I could handle it. 
I love that teacher. I she should get an award of some kind. <laughs> I mean, and how simple that is. She believed in you. She believed in you, and that feels good. Well, I know, and there, there's this new program. It's a brilliant program out of Yale for helping kids with anxiety. The acronym is SPACE. It's Supportive Parenting for Anxious Childhood Emotions. And one of the main things that parents are taught to do is to express empathy. You know, that I, I know this is really scary for you. And then, but I'm 100% confident that you can handle it. Because what we do, because we're mammals, what we do when kids find something stressful, we try to protect them from it. If a little kid is afraid to go into the bathroom by himself, we go in there with him, like that kind of thing. And it turns out that when we make that kind of accommodation to a kid's anxiety, it just makes them more anxious. And so yeah. what we're taught to do is, is to eventually not make those accommodations. But the first step is you express empathy. I, I know that going to the bathroom by, by yourself makes you anxious, but I'm also 100% confident that you can handle it, which requires us to manage our own anxiety and then to communicate confidence that you can handle it so that we communicate that, that brave, courageous attitude. That's so important, I think. But again, it all stems from the trust that we have in, I guess, in ourselves as parents and therefore towards our children. Yeah. You said it well in your book, it takes courage to trust a child to make decisions, to trust in a child's brain development, to ignore the pressures that cause us to protect our kids from themselves or to be overly involved in their lives. It takes courage to face our fears about the future. It also takes humility to accept that we don't often know what's in our kids' best interest. It takes a change in mindset to focus on ourselves, our own emotions and attitudes as an extremely important element of our child rearing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> Five years later, I still like it. Yeah. I like it too. Yeah. But then you also say, as hard as all of this is, the harder route by far is trying to control what we really can't. Yeah. In the book, we talk about some postulates of motivation. And one of them is that you can't make a kid do something against their will. You know, and I think that, that knowing that, knowing you really can't make another human, even a little kid, you can't make a little kid do something. You know, if, if your kid, you need to get in the car to go see grandma and they don't want to get in, they're refusing, you can pick them up and put them in the car, but th then they aren't getting in the car, you're, you're, you're putting in the car. You really can't make somebody do something. And when you make peace with that, that if, if, if I really, theoretically, I really couldn't make him do something, you make peace with that, you realize well, that, that's not my rule. It couldn't be my responsibility to always make him do the right thing. And for me, I, as the older I get and the more I see that some disaster looks like a disaster leads to something really good. I get more humble about knowing what's in a kid's best interest and inclined to take that attitude that this is your life and you get to figure it out and I'm going to help you. We talk about the idea as parents being a consultant to their kid rather than their boss or the manager or their, their, their homework police who's always running their lives because our goal is for kids to be able to run their own lives before they leave home. And that's what it suggests to parents of young children is think about, you, know, you, you aren't going to start turning over the keys to your five-year-old, but the idea is, is let's move in that direction. Moving it for myself, I'm going to move in the direction of a non-anxious presence who can support my kid in, in making wise decisions, practice making decisions for themselves, learning from their feedback, who can trust my kid. I can say, I have confidence you can solve these problems. That's my role. And the kid's role eventually is to figure out who they want to be and, and, and be able to run their own life. And I say that because 
I, I was giving a lecture about the self-driven child in Houston before the pandemic. And I happened to mention the, the most elite high school in Washington, D.C. And a woman came up to me afterwards and said, I, I'm a therapist at the Menninger Clinic here in Houston, this really good mental health clinic in Houston. And she said, we know this school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates get into the top colleges in the country. But as soon as, soon as they get a B, or as soon as they realize that, that, that everybody, everybody's there as smart as they are, or as soon as they ask a girl out and she, she dumps them, they can't handle it. So they take a medical leave of absence and they come here for treatment. Oh. And she said, to the one, they just don't have enough experience making their own decisions, solving their own problems, running their own life. And I just, I gave a lecture recently and this guy came up to me and said, I just finished my doctoral dissertation on promoting autonomy in two-year-olds by, do you want to do it this way or this way? Start out by giving them a limited number of choices. So that you're, you're coming back to that, treating them respectfully that you, you, you mentioned earlier. So for the parents that listen to her regularly and know my work, they know that a lot of what this podcast ends up being about is how to actually set limits with children and have those boundaries for them and all of those things, which are, to me, in a different category than what you're talking about, but not completely. I mean, we still give children choices with things that we have to help them do, like getting into the car seat, for example. Do you want to be the one to go in by yourself? You know, but we do have to take charge of them because if we don't, that creates the kind of stress that doesn't help them to function either. As, as we say in the self-driven child, this idea of being consulted, it doesn't mean that the kid's the boss of the family. We, we see this as squarely in the tradition of what's called authoritative parenting, as opposed to authoritarian or laissez-faire. And in authoritative parenting, you know, we're, we're the guides of the family. You know, we're, we're the leaders of the family. And we work out limits with, with kids. And, and, and ideally, we, uh, someone's, you know, so three or four, and we sit down and talk about limits and so that they're kind of agreed upon and everybody knows and they feel fair. We want to minimize the extent to which we're enforcing limits. When, when we're mad, go to your room kind of thing. But if little kids have too much freedom, as you said, it just makes them anxious. They can't handle it. Kids with lazy fear parenting, where there's fair limits, fair few rules, family rules that are enforced, it makes them really anxious because young people, they, they need to feel that my parents are in charge. And ultimately, yes. from that position, we treat them respectfully and, and know that the way kids become good decision makers is by practicing make decisions. And the way kids learn to, to treat other people respectfully is by being treated respectfully. And so yes. we can give kids choices, we can give them freedom. But we don't let them walk all over us. They, they aren't the boss of the family. They can't do anything they want. It, it's a delicate balance, but it's doable if we realize that kids need limits. And it's really good to treat your kid respectfully, like he or yeah. she is a human being who, who, who has, has a mind of her own. And it's also true that when we, treat, when we treat kids respectfully, that they're more likely to go along with us. You know, when, when they feel loved and appreciated and enjoyed, they're just more likely to just go along with us, not fight us. Because we're on the same team. Yeah. And they know that. They feel that. You know, the way I see it and teach it, again, from infancy. So there's like sort of two areas, even though we want to give children choice when they can handle it. Sometimes they, they can't in the kind of boundary type situations or, you know, situations in their care where they really need us to take the lead. But then there's this whole other area of play, learning that's theirs, that belongs to them. And the more we support that 
while staying in our lane and not trying to micromanage it and decide what it should be, the, the better. I love that. It makes complete sense to me. That's how I learned this, and it just felt really clear. Like, I'm a person that needs things to be very, very clear in my mind to be able to even try to do them. Yeah. And I really feel like my major mission, and certainly one of the reasons that I wanted to write The Self-Driven Child, is to help parents feel that it's safe. It's safe not to worry about your kid all the time. It's safe to feel that you can trust your kids a lot of time. It's safe to feel that you aren't supposed to know who they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be like or what's always right for them. You couldn't know because when, when something happens to a kid, do you judge whether it was good or bad the next day or, or five years later or 10 years later? Certainly one of the most important experiences of my entire life was the first time I went to graduate school in English literature. I went for 20 straight weeks and I, I didn't turn in a single assignment because I was just so anxious and insecure. I work with a lot of underachievers, and I say, 20 weeks, I turned in nothing. Top that. Uh, I have nightmares about that. (laughs) But but, but my point is, so after the second quarter, I turned in again, so I I flunked out. And I I felt like my whole life had gone up in smoke. And it took me me about a month to realize it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. No way should I have been an English professor. I, I always felt like an imposter. I felt kind of out of my league. And I wanted to do something with children. Most of my professors gave me incompletes. This one flunked me, so I couldn't go back. And I prayed that I'd meet him and be able to thank him. But honest to God, Janet, two years later, I'm walking on the campus of the University of Washington where I'm taking some classes in education, and I see this guy. And I go up to him, and I say, you, you probably don't remember me. He, he didn't remember me. But I said, you flunked me two years ago, and it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me. Thank you. It's a very satisfying experience. But, but but the point is that if we see what, what kids are going through, it's part of their path to figure the, their lives out. And our job is to support them and help them. And as you said, to, you know, to provide structure and direction as necessary. It's just a lot easier. Yeah. It works better for us. It's easier. It's less stressful when we stay in our lane and let them do their work and we do ours and trust everybody to do their job. It's safe to do it. And I create conversations, as you do, because I, I walk this walk with my own kids, and I have two wonderful adult children who grew up with no academic pressure at all, and both have PhDs. And this approach of really fostering a sense of control as they get older, playing more of that consultant role to help them figure out who they want to be. Uh, the three questions that I ask to think about my relationship with kids is, whose life is it, whose responsibility is it, and whose problem is it? And I, and I want to remember that, that I, I don't know who they want to be. It's their life. I want to remember that I don't want to take responsibility for something that, that, that's really a kid's responsibility, like doing their homework, for example. And, and also that I don't want to solve problems that they're capable of solving themselves. And you share so many incredible case studies, and you have a whole chapter on navigating learning disabilities, ADHD, and autism spectrum disorders, and how your approach can work with children that have those challenges. And yeah, I mean, the other thing that you said is the enjoyment factor. So not only is it easier for us when we're not trying to do jobs that that aren't going to work for us because they're not our job we're not as able to enjoy the unfolding of the person because we're so busy worrying about if they're measuring up in this way or that way. And yeah. you offer these points around being a non-anxious presence. 
make enjoying your kids your top parenting priority. Don't fear the future. Maybe easier said than done, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we got to put trust out there, right? Yes, yes. The, the enjoyment piece, when I used to do therapy, starting about 35 years ago, I did a lot of therapy um, with parents. And what came to me is that let's set our highest parenting priority is simply enjoying your child. Because when you enjoy your child, she experiences herself as a joy-producing organism as opposed to a, a, an anxiety-producing or an anger-producing or a frustration-producing organism. And it's not that we have to enjoy the very second, you know, but the idea of just being spontaneously enjoyed, that's how people have a sense. I, I'm, I'm likable. And so what I do with parents is I, I, we work backwards. So let, let's make that our goal. What's keeping you from enjoying your kid most of the time? And it may be you know, some behavioral thing. It may be something in the marriage. It may be something, some, some pressures at work, may be insomnia. And so, so let, let's work on these things. So with the goal being to enjoy your kid. So your kid starts to see, see himself as a joy-producing organism. Yes. And it also can be because we're trying to do right by our child, putting them on the team or whatever. And now we're dragging them to practice because they don't want to go. And it's impossible to enjoy your child that way. But what I remember is when I could observe my children playing, which they allowed me to do about to the age of five, <laughs> they didn't want me to anymore. But their ideas, and I, mean, I just remember one time my daughter, she was waiting for me at, I was teaching actually, and she had to come that day. And, and I see her over there, she was using paper clips, like something that was there. And she was making people out of paper clips and they were talking to each other, you know, without even bending them or destroying them or anything. You know, she made up this whole story with paper clips. And it's just that kind of stuff that children do that's so cool. And we can really see who they are and like their imagination and interests and all of these things. It's so much more interesting. But anyway, I'm going to finish your list here. Don't fear the future. Commit to your own stress management. Make peace with your worst fears. Adopt an attitude of non-judgmental acceptance. Yeah. What is that non-judgmental yeah. acceptance? Well, I think m most parents kind of buy the idea that it helps kids to feel that they're loved unconditionally. And yes. I think what that, that means is kind of warts and all. And it means that we accept them and, and we love them and we approve of them, even if they're having a hard time, even if they're trying to figure stuff out. And so this non-judgmental acceptance just means that if they're acting badly, we'll intervene in some ways. But we, we take the attitude that we, we aren't judgmental. We don't kind of give them the idea you're a bad kid or this is unacceptable to me kind of thing. That we deal with them respectfully and say that this, this isn't working. Or, or, you know, I don't let people talk to me that way. I'll see you in five minutes. And, and we find ways of dealing with the disrespectful to the kid and Give the kid the message. I can handle. I can handle your strong feelings. I can handle yeah. your bad behavior. You know, because we know there's a reason they're acting like that. It's exactly. usually about exactly. what's going on inside them. It's not. It's right. hardly right. ever really about us. You know, so we don't need to take right. it personally. Part of the goal of, of becoming a non-anxious presence is that when we're in the calm, we're much better listeners. We're much better able to convey empathy, to express empathy for kids. Uh, we're less controlling, and we're much more able to solve the problem or figure out the issue because we're not under stress. Yeah. That's exactly right. Just recognizing that once you're stressed or your kid is stressed, you can't think clearly. Don't bother trying to t teach a lesson or don't try to tell your kids something that, that they can really get, get their attention. If you're stressed and they're stressed because they, they really can't hear it. 
because we evolved to respond instinctively. So the prefrontal cortex that can think logically and rationally basically gets shut down because the last thing you'd want to do if you're being <laughs> attacked by a woolly mammoth is to stop and think about it. So that, that recognizing when we start to feel stressed, it's not the right time to lecture our kid or to try to teach them something. We say, you know, I, I, I want to talk about this. I want to, I want to help you with this, but I'm, I'm a little stressed right now. I'm, I'm going to take a little, I'm going to take a walk or I'm going to go to my room for a few minutes, but I want to come back and let's work this out. This non-anxious presence is a powerful idea. And it's just, it's, it's a goal. And it's a goal moment to moment, I feel like. It's not like, oh, I got it. I'm the non-anxious presence forever. It's something that we're constantly just trying to keep in our mind the importance of. And we see like when we do it, that it really, really helps. You know, it helps calm that person down. It helps them pass through it. It helps them figure things out and not get stuck in our, our stuff. I could talk to you all day long. Gosh, I just, I'm, you know, fascinated by all these topics that you're, you're an expert on. And I would love to have you come back another time and we'll go over one of these other topics. But for now, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today, sharing all your knowledge. As you say, we think of chronic stress in children as teenagers as the societal equivalent of climate change, a problem that has been building over generations and will take considerable effort and a change of habits to overcome. And that's what you say in your book. And wow, that's scary. But, you know, we can all be taking steps in that direction. The idea is if we want a calmer world, a more peaceful world, and we work on that in ourselves. There's so many things that we can do to make lives better for ourselves and our kids. And, and, and we can model for our kids really taking good care of ourselves. When we work on our own stress management, whether it's through exercise or meditation or yoga, we model for our kids that I take care of myself so I can, can be at the top of my game. And yeah. I, I think, you know, what more can we do? Not much, but try to enjoy our kids. It's, Even it's as a, they get older too. Like I'm having just as much fun, if not more, with my adult children as oh I did my with my little ones. And I love working with little ones. That's why I do it. it it's true. And, and I love being a parent at every age. I loved raising teenagers and, and having young adults is just fabulous. It's a great role. Same. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Janet. All right. You take yeah. care. Hey, you too. Bye. -bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Please check out some of the other podcasts on my website, JanetLansbury.com. They're all indexed by subject and category, so you should be able to find whatever topic you might be interested in. And my books, No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Childcare, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can get them in paperback at Amazon and an ebook at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Apple.com. Thanks so much for listening. We can do this. If you like Unruffled, you can listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.